Hey everyone, if you're a fan of the show, please head over to MikeyOp.com and click the subscribe button. It's the best way to support us, and it's free. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P dot com. Thanks. Hi, I'm Mike Oppenheim, and you are listening to Coffin Talk, interviews with the living, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death affect the way we live our life. This week, coming all the way from Australia, is Marie Alessi, and she works officially in the grief counseling world, but her story for how she got there is not only compelling, but also kind of sad, so... A little bit of a trigger warning for those of you out here. This one might uh, jerk some tears, but it ends with a person who says she will offer you different perspective on life, love, and grief, and leave you with choices that are yours to make. So, Marie, can you say hi, please? Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. It's a total pleasure to have you. Um, we have a couple standard questions on the show, really just two. So the first one is, um, how old are you? Where did you grow up? And uh, what generation, if any, do you consider yourself a member of? Oh, wow. Um, I honestly never think about what generation I'm a member of. There's too many X, Y, Z, whatever. I've, I don't even know anymore. It doesn't really matter, to be honest. I, um, If you ask my boys how old I am, they tell you 39 forever. I trained them well, thank you. But you can actually add a dec- decade to that. So, yeah. Um, how old am I? That's what was the other question? Where am I from? So I was actually uh, born in Vienna, Austria, but then grew up in Germany till I was about seven, and then we went back to Austria traveled around a lot there uh, due to the profession of my dad. He was a construction engineer. So he was always overlooking quite large projects and we moved with him. So I've got 21 moves under my belt so far and counting and have moved to Australia in 2004. Wow, that's awesome. Um, and I am not an accent, accent expert, but would you say you have an Austrian, a German or an Australian or none of the above accent? Definitely not German. Careful. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, a very, very slight Austrian accent will always be there. So Australians always discover that. Like they always go like, okay, where's that slight accent from? But everywhere else in the world I go, they, they think I'm Australian. So it's probably just really noticeable quite strongly for the native ones or native English-speaking people. But, yeah, everywhere else in the world, they don't notice it at all. All right, cool. So I feel a little bit less ignorant. Uh, awesome. I used to, I taught ESL for like 10 years, so I've – I have a lot of familiarity with hearing people speak, but yours um, was definitely captivating me. So you moved to Australia, and uh, shortly thereafter, you met your husband, the father of your two children. And so I'm just going to let you tell the story from there. Awesome. Okay. So, yeah, because a lot of people always ask me, did you move here for Rob? And I said, no, I actually I always wanted to move here. So I can only describe that as a really strong calling that I had my whole life. I always felt like I was born on the wrong side of the planet. And uh, in 1997, I actually came here for the first time, visited like nine times in three years, like really crazy back and forth all the time. And it took me, it took me seven years to finally um, make my way to Australia, find a, a way to stay in the country legally. Everybody always choked around and said, you just got to get married. You know, I'm like, there's no way I'm, I'm only going to get married for, for one reason. And that's love, you know, and 10 months after finally moving here for good, um, I was blessed with meeting Rob. So that was absolutely true love. And we got married 10 months later. If you would have told me that before, I would have gone like, no way. Like if it's really Mr. Right, he'll still be Mr. Right in three to five years. But when I met Rob, there was just no questions. But it was just so clear to both of us. We just knew. And you know how many people always say that when you know, you know. I always thought that's so silly to say. What does that mean, you know? And and then I knew. And I knew. <laughs> 
I, I more than agree. Yes. Um, so yeah, so you sound like you're pretty intuitively driven. So keep keep going. Yeah. So the next step, uh, yeah, Rob and I got married. We had our dream barefoot wedding at the beach. Uh, two years later, we had our first son, Flynn. Uh, another two years later, our second son, Jed. And that completed our family. We lived a really, really happy life, not just on Facebook, in true life. We were really in tune, very connected. Um, and we were always looked at, you know, oh, you're that couple, you know, it's like get a room and you're just so crazily lost still after all these years and how do you do it? And Rob and I were just really in tune, you know, there, there was never any serious arguments or like that. We were just, I don't know, just literally match made in heaven. I, I can't put it in any other ways. And um, so, yeah, I left the advertising industry that I was on in when I met Rob and then stumbled into the self-development world. I became a mindset mentor, focused a lot on transition, transformation, and did that for about seven years, more and more in the business world. I worked with a lot of business owners to help them with their personal growth, to achieve business growth. And... Um, Seven years into running my business, Rob went on a business trip and never came back. So he was halfway across the country or actually all the other way on the other side of Australia on a business trip in Perth. And um, we chatted the night before, had a really beautiful conversation about love, believe it or not. And uh, yeah, and, and he said, I'll wake you up tomorrow morning because I had to update my phone. I couldn't use it as an alarm clock. And that should have been 7.30 and I woke up at 7.31 and Rob hadn't called. And for everybody who knows Rob, he was always on time. He would always, you know, he would always be Mr. Reliable and something within me told me something happened, but I didn't want to buy into that feeling. And as a mom, you just go about your day because the kids had to go to school. I had to get them ready. My little one wasn't feeling well. He was coughing like crazy. I spent half the night in my bed. And, you know, you just go about your day. And then the longer the day went on and I hadn't heard from him, the the more my anxiety levels were rising. And I'm not a person to usually have anxiety, but I could feel something wasn't right. And I kept texting and I kept calling and I think he must have had like, I don't know how many missed calls from me that day. And then around lunchtime, he hit me and I thought, you know what, I'm going to call the hotel. And as I was dialing the number, because Rob always left the number of the hotel with me where he stayed. As I was dialing the number, I had a very, very brief vision, almost like a flash. And I saw Rob collapsing in the shower and um, I was just shaking my head. I remember like physically shaking my head going like, don't be silly, Marie, just get your act together. And I'm calling them and uh, I said, look, I just, you know, I'm Marie Alessia. I I believe my husband is staying with you and um, I just haven't heard from him. And please don't think I'm one of those freaked out wives talking to her husband, but can you please send somebody up to his room and check, you know, and, as I said that, I, I added, and can you please also check in a shower? And I thought, they must think, what, what's what's on with her, you know? But because I had this vision, I thought, I want to add that. And I said, yeah, yeah, he's staying with us. We just sent him an email. And anyway, I hadn't heard back from them. And time went on and on. And I kept ringing the hotel again, and nobody answered. And then I started really freaking out because I thought, you know, my number now. Something must have happened. Why are you not picking up? Why is nobody calling me back? And I'm calling his boss and and I said, hey, James, I haven't heard from Rob all day and, and something's going on. I, I called the hotel. They're not ringing me back. He said, don't worry. 
I'll call the appointment where he should have been this morning and, and I'll let you know. And he calls me back five minutes later. I'm actually having goosebumps telling this story again because it's all coming back to me every time I talk about it in detail. And he's like, I'm really sorry to tell you this, Marie, but he didn't show up his, at his appointment. And my heart sunk because that moment I knew something really bad must have happened because for Rob to not show up at an appointment, that is just unheard of, you know. So about 15, 20 minutes later, I had called a friend of mine. She sat with me. She started ringing the hospitals in Perth. And as she was ringing the first hospital and she's spelling out his last name, I gestured her to hang up because I had received a phone call. And here's the weird part about being bilingual. This guy I'm sergeant such and such from the coroner's office in Perth. I had never heard the word coroner's office before. I didn't know what it meant. So I was completely, I was completely, uh, you know, okay. Yeah. And here I'm still thinking maybe he was in an accident, maybe he's in hospital, whatever, you know. And he literally said those words, I'm sorry to inform you that your husband deceased in a hotel room in Perth this morning. And I just sunk to the floor. I was just, it was so surreal. It was like in a movie, you know. It, it's just, you always, I don't know, you hear stories like that from other people, but you never think this could happen to you. And and there it was, you know. I heard the news and I, I just took a few moments to process that. I just really didn't know what to do. Like, it was just completely, I'm like, what? You know, you have this, it, you're that voice in your head that goes, rewind, hold on, this didn't happen, you know, this is just wrong script, you know, what are you telling me here? And uh, the reality sunk in really quickly, I have to say, you know, I sat there, I, was, I, I had to say it out loud to my friend who was sitting with me. I um, I can't even, honestly, I can't, to the day, I can't remember whether I cried or not. I was in, in shock when I heard the news. And I knew I had to go downstairs to tell the boys. I knew that was the first thing I had to do. And I remember my friend saying to me, what are you going to do? You know, do you do you want me to take the boys? And I looked at her as if she had completely lost her marbles. I said, no way, you know, I, I need to have them with me. I, and I instantly thought they literally just lost their dad. There's no way I would leave them without me. So I had to walk downstairs and tell the boys. They were 10 and 8 at, at the time, you know, like really oh, – heartbreaking and I told them what happened and they burst into tears and then I started crying and then they started screaming and it was just horrendous you know they uh, I'll never forget that that screaming is still ringing in my ears and I think back now so what happened in that moment is I, I literally switched into functioning mode you know I, a real quick question just because it's it ties into the theme of the show um sure how old were your children and was the concept of death something that they like immediately understood or were you like explaining it to them in the context of their own father? Mm. So we never really, um, it was definitely not that they didn't understand. So they definitely understood what that meant. They were 10 and eight and I had lost my dad when I was 20. So I was quite a bit older than them, but still for me it was early back then. And then, I thought, wow, you know, they were not even combined as old as I was when they lost their dad. And and I still remember that the first two things, and that will explain your question, Flynn, my older one, the first thing he said, because he's 
he's Mr. Security, you know, he needs to know what's going on. He needs to have everything in place. And when I shared those news with him, that must have opened a can of worms for his brain, seriously. And he just looked at me and said, mom, who's going to look after us now? And I, and I looked at him and I said, well, I will look after you, Flynn. I will do that, you know. And in hindsight, I often realized how important it was, not just for him and his brother, but also for me to actually say that out loud. It was almost like, this is my mission. I will look after you. You know, I will do that job myself. And, uh, and, and then my little one, and that really broke me, I have to say. That really pierced through my heart. He looked at me in tears. And I'll never forget his face when he said that. He said, I'm only eight and I'm not going to have a daddy anymore. Oh, my God, Marie. This is worse than I thought. <laughs> oh. He he under, understood right there, right then. He understood. And I have to say, my boys are both very, very ahead and mature for their age. And that has even added to it, as you can imagine. You know, they were really... Um, you can tell such a difference when you listen to my boys, the things they think about and talk about. There's such maturity in them, but, you know, that that is their life. That's what they have experienced. And also the work that I do has certainly influenced that as well. And they are very, very behind the work I do, which is so beautiful, you know, to see that at their age. It's like, Mom, I'm so proud of what you do. I really love what you do, and it's really lovely. So I'm going to fast forward that because we could talk for hours about that, but I, I really give you that in a, in a bullet point form, what happened thereafter. So basically, I drove to his parents. I thought that it's not news that I ever want anybody to have to hear over the phone. So I drove to his parents. On the way, I did talk to his siblings over the phone because I thought there's no way I can drive to everyone, but his parents should really not find out over the phone. So I rang his siblings on the way. I drove his parents. I shared the news. Um, his mom was just as much in shock as I was. His dad had the same reaction like my children. He broke apart. He was screaming. I'll I'll never forget that. It really, it's just, um, it, it was so unexpected. And he was behind the door because he was in, in, in the shower. So she walked into the bathroom and told him behind closed doors. And, and we just heard him scream through the door. It was, it was ridiculous. It was just really unbelievable. No words. And then uh, we spent the night there. Everybody came to their house, the siblings, some neighbors, some close friends. I just sat there completely numb. The boy slept with me. Um, his brother was so kind. He gave up his room so I could sleep in the same bed with the boys. And the next day we flew out to Perth. We had to fly across the country to identify his body. And I took the boys with me because I thought I, I could not do that to them. You know, when their dad flies to Perth and never comes home and then I fly by myself, there's no way I, I knew. I had to do that with them, you know. So I was sobbing all the way, all the way on a plane. I, I could not stop crying. I was just, I told the flight attendants what had happened and burst into tears and then I couldn't stop anymore. I just needed somebody to know because in my early days, I actually worked as a flight attendant myself. So I just knew when you're on board and you, you have a passenger that's just sitting there sobbing, you do want to know what's going on if they need help or something. So I thought, I want to preempty that if they could potentially ask me in front of the boys. I went to the galley and told them myself, and then I burst into tears and I couldn't stop crying. So luckily we had friends in Perth. They took us in. I'll never forget that. They were just absolutely amazing. 
so Yolanda Richard, if you ever listen to this, my heart is so full of gratitude that you took us in. It was really incredible. And um, yeah, she took me to the mortuary the next day with the boys. I gave them the option to come or not. They wanted to be there. And Mike, honestly, I'm so glad I took them. Some people questioned my, questioned my decision, but it was a closure that we all needed as a family. And I kid you not, we were standing in this mortuary. I always thought it would be cold and horrible, but it was actually, there was so much warmth and love in this room. I have no words. I could feel Rob's presence so clearly there. And, you know, talking about maturity of my children, Slim being 10 years old and I'm standing there and we, we spend quite a bit of time, you know, just standing there and I had prepared them for the body being cold and all these things. I'm so grateful that my brain kicked in and I, I was thinking of all these things the night before. And I was prepared for that. I told them and prepared them, but I kissed him on the forehead and I remember how it shocked me that he was so cold. And after a while, I stood there and I thought, how are we ever going to cut the cord? You know, how are we ever going to leave this room? And that moment I was thinking that, Flynn looked at me and he said, Mum, I think we should go because the longer, longer we wait, the sadder we'll get and the harder it is to leave. And I thought, you're 10 years old. Your wisdom is beyond words, you know. And I said, I think you're right. You know, and it was just beautiful. And we stood, we all held hands. We were standing around Rob's body. And, um, yeah, so the rest was then really a whirlwind. Coming home, my mom arrived from Austria. Her flight was already booked because my little one had his first Holy Communion. Uh, so we have Rob's funeral on the Wednesday or Thursday, sorry. I can't remember now. And then on Sunday, um, Jed's Holy Communion. So it was really quite full on for our family, you know, just walking down the aisle with Jed to the Holy Communion, all eyes were on us. The whole town knew. We're living in a small town. Everybody knew, you know. I, I had tears running down my face. but still had to get my act together to walk him down that aisle. And then... Um, and then I actually, about a week after the funeral, had a nervous breakdown in the kitchen. And that was a very pivotal point in this entire journey for me. I remember the boys were sort of having a bit of a hiccup over brushing their teeth and they were back and forth and back and forth. And I, I said to them, can you just please, just please stop fighting. I just can't handle this right now, you know. And they went on and on as if they didn't hear me. And then I said, guys, I just need peace and quiet. You know, I just called it up there. And the moment I said it, it was like a valve had opened. I cannot describe it in any other words. There was a valve that opened and I couldn't close it anymore, like a pressure cooker. It just kept shooting out. And I just kept saying this same sentence over and over again. I just need peace and quiet. And I kept yelling it and I kept screaming it. And then I was just screaming on top of my lungs. And again, I sunk to the floor and I was whacking the kitchen cupboards and I completely lost it. And I remember it was almost like an out-of-body experience. I was watching myself and I could not stop myself. I was completely losing it. And um, yeah, and then after a while, everything was, peaceful and quiet maybe not very peaceful but it was quiet and then I thought oh my god what have I done I need to I need to go upstairs to the boys you know and I went upstairs I sat with them in the bed Flynn was under the blanket Jed was hiding under the blanket and I had a very calm and very long chat to them about 
what happened, you know, and I said, uh, I don't ever want you to witness something like that again. I'm really sorry that that happened. You know, I could not stop myself and I explained how I felt and how important it was to release that and how sorry I am that they had to witness that. And I said, you know how you talked to Doreen at school? She was the school counsellor. And they were like, yeah. And I said, I think I need to have somebody as well that I can talk to. And Flynn said, I think that's a good idea, Mom. It was so beautiful. And literally the next day I called. Um, I had one lady, because I was a coach, whenever I had people come to me that were beyond what I could or wanted to touch in terms of coaching, I would have a network that I could refer people on to. And there was one positive psychologist, Emily May, absolute beautiful lady, and I rang her and told her what happened. And she said, I've got an emergency appointment um, on Monday. Do you want it? And I said, absolutely. So that started my journey. Four months into it, we're having this conversation about uh, what grief means to me and the expectations. The expectations of society were really overwhelming for me because my focus was on happiness. And people didn't understand that. I knew that for me, for my boys, and that's what I had always promised Rob. We always said to each other, if something was ever to happen to you, I want you to create the happiest life you possibly can for you and the boys. We always said that to each other. And of course, we thought that was theory, but when it happened, I knew that was my path. And then I looked at society and everybody expected me to fall apart, and I didn't. After all of that, I did not fall apart anymore. I just had my focus on I'm going to create happiness for the boys, whatever it takes. And every day that was my go-to. Every day, like even the starting to sing again in the kitchen, you know, like I, I used to always sing when I was happy and I started doing that again. And at first it was very, like, you know, hardly any power in my voice and very quiet. But then, you know, it got more and more and I put music on again. I started dancing again. I started taking every single happy moment and making the best and make sure I do that for the boys. So when Emily asked me what grief meant to me, I had empowerment come up as the first word. It was really interesting. I didn't expect that. And I said to her, you know, I think I need to write a book about this. And she said, yeah, that would be great. So I did. Um, within a month, I wrote a book and published it, and it was called Loving Life After Loss. I give you the story, how I met Rob, how we fell in love, how we had our dream wedding, our boys, our house, our dream life, and then how he passed and how we dealt with it. And what I didn't expect was that overnight, the book not only became an Amazon number one bestseller, but it ranked in the top 100 of Australia, and that really blew me away. I was like, oh, my God. I have something the world needs. And um, then I took the boys traveling around the world for two months to create new happy memories. You know, my older son, Flynn, he's like, I want to eat escargot in Paris. And I'm like, I'll take you. And we did. <laughs> I cannot believe that I actually ate escargot in Paris. I never, ever wanted to try that. It's one of those really disgusting things for me. I'm sorry to all the French people listening to this. And... Um, he got me with one sentence. Guess what he said to me, Mike? He had the first bite and he's like, I want to try, Mum. I said, no, thank you. Definitely not. And he looked at me and said, Dad would have tried it with me. Oh, wow. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, you got me. I said, that is so mean. And then not only I tried it, but my little one too. And my little one never tries new things. 
he is just not, if I don't know it, I'm not going to taste it. And he had a bite too. So that was such a beautiful and disgusting experience that all three of us shared half an escargot in Paris and the rest was sent back to the kitchen. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, your story is not only compelling, but it's, you know, it's touching. I mean, I can see why it's a bestseller. And, you know, when I discovered you, not meaning I discovered you, like when I discovered you in the way we met, I was, you know, blown away. But um, the purpose of this podcast is to discuss, like, something within the nuances of that story. And so it would actually be interesting to hear your children at some point. But I am just going to ask you, in between the first time you got the intuitive hunch that he had collapsed in the shower, and then the confirmation that he really had, and then the coroner, and then the mortuary, and the nervous breakdown... At all these points, I wanted to interrupt and ask you, obviously I didn't for a good reason, but um, what do you think happens to someone when they die and how was that affecting your process in those moments? Oh, wow. I'm having goosebumps. I love this question. So first of all, thank you for letting me tell all this story. And secondly, what I feel, um, you know, often it took me a little while to actually be able to share this openly because at first I thought uh, people might think I'm nuts or people might, you know, I, I understand and really, really appreciate and honor that people have got different faiths and different beliefs. Yet my biggest belief and understanding, and it took me a couple of months to really actually voice that in my head, was that Rob and I had a soul contract and that that contract had finished. That him passing was all part of that contract and it was a huge massive act of love for me and then what was born out of his passing is so much bigger than the two of us so I now see so many blessings in that and so many gifts I always talk about the hidden gifts and adversity so to answer the question where I think he is uh, have you read the book by Anita Moriani, Dying to Be Me? No, I have not. Okay. So in a nutshell, she had a near-death experience and she describes uh, how she's standing there as something that she describes like a portal, like a virtual portal that she felt. She said it didn't look like a door, but she knew it felt like a portal and she knew that if she would walk through, she wouldn't come back. And she's describing this moment of meeting there with her dead with her, sorry, with her dad, she was she was about to die. She had cancer, and the doctors literally gave her two weeks to live. And her organs started shutting down. It was she was in a really really bad shape. And her dad said, "It's not your time to go." And she's like, "But I don't want to go back because my body is hurting." And I remember reading this book, thinking that's exactly how I think it is. Like reading every single word of her book, thinking. That is how I feel it is. You are in a different realm and everything you feel there is peace and beauty and love. And it is just completely, and she describes it, like she felt like she had a 360-degree peripheral vision and an all-knowing and an all-understanding. And she said all of a sudden she realized how she got sick and therefore she knew how she could revert it. And she went back into her body and healed herself from cancer within weeks. It was incredible. So for anyone who hasn't read the book and is really interested in that, I can so recommend Anita Moriani, Dying to Be Me, because that to me is really how I feel that heaven is or the other realm is or whatever word you have for that doesn't really matter. I think it's all full of love and peace and that our loved ones that are over there are definitely souls that are with us. That connection stays, you know. 
And I'm not one of those. Oh, my husband will always be with me. That's that's not even that's not even where I'm going with this. It's just those soul connections are soul connections for life. It's like a person that you haven't seen since your childhood, and you have had really a, you know great connections, great friendship. That connection will always stay. I, I love that, and I, I completely agree. And actually, I apologize. I did read that book. I didn't recognize the title or the author's name, but um, I read so many books of that category, and I it was not only profound, but it affected me very similar. And so I just want to make sure I own up to that because in, in a good way, I was, um, as you described it, I was like, oh my God, yeah, I remember this. And uh, you really told it well. So you read that book, obviously, after all this happened. And as you were going through it, though, were you still like, was that kind of your model for like, okay, he's not coming back, but it's because our oral contract had finished. So I'm grieving because I miss the living hell out of him. But I accept that he's there and he made that choice. Is that accurate, what I'm saying? Yeah, I never, like, I never uh, questioned why he died. And that is a really interesting point because so many people would have said to me, you must constantly ask yourself why. And I looked at them and I said, well, actually, I don't. And they thought, you know, I have gone mental. And I'm like, no, I don't. There's something inside of me that tells me, there was huge purpose behind that. I'm yet to find out what that was, but I mean, back then, meanwhile, I do know. But it was really, I, I had this very early on. I'm literally saying within a day or two, or even within the few first, like when this first shock moment was over and I went into functioning mode and then I had time to process. I remember laying in bed, um, you know, my brother in law who gave up his room so we could stay there. And um, I remember laying there. And I could physically feel my grief. I had never in my life experienced anything like that, not even when my dad passed. It literally felt like somebody had emptied a bucket of acid in my in my stomach. It was physical pain, that grief that I felt. And I remember my brain trying to process that, my emotions trying to process that. And something inside of me was like there's huge purpose behind that. I did not question why, not once, which is really bizarre, but also a very huge gift for me. Yeah, and I, I actually, I do and do not find it bizarre. I know exactly what you're saying. And I think this is the purpose of this podcast is I feel that death has become unfairly taboo and also much to the detriment of our Western culture and our values. And so I'm speaking very specifically, um, but Australia obviously is a part of that with the United States. And, um, and so I think... First of all, I think what I want to highlight as we're wrapping up here, and I'm going to give you another chance to talk uh, for sure, but um, is that when you took your children to the mortuary, that's the kind of behavior that I'm hoping to encourage through this podcast is, is not talking to your children about death unnecessarily and not doing it early, but like, let's be frank and let's like share these experiences and, 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 you know, let it affect the way we live our lives. And so that's kind of how, how I want to end is I want to ask you, um, and you, you, you've made a living doing this and, and rightfully so, and you deserve it and you're, you're empowering people. And I'm such a fan and I'm so supportive of that. So is there something still that you feel that people aren't getting that involves like death and grief? So tying it specifically to the death part. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, I, there, there are two main things that come up for me that I really, really want to share. One is don't force your children but offer them the opportunity. Trust your children's intuition that they know what's right for them. I know people say, but she's only three or she's only five. Children have got so much more wisdom, inner wisdom than we give them credit for. And when I asked my boys, they said they wanted to come. 
And, you know, on the on the way to Perth on the plane, when I explained to them what that meant, that term identifying dad's body, um, Flynn said to me, so it could be that they have the wrong guy. And I said, no, Flynn, I I know in my heart that it's that. Don't you think you would have called us by now if he, if they did have the wrong guy? I told them about a tattoo because Rob and I got a matching tattoo for our 10th wedding anniversary for our children, a little universe, you know, with their initials in it. And uh, I, I asked straight away, has he got that tattoo on his shoulder? And they said, yes. So I knew, I knew instantly, you know, um, and in my heart I knew, but he didn't and he needed to see him. They really needed to see him and that gave them closure. So I'm really grateful that I did that. And what I'm saying is leave that up to your children to decide, even when they're little, you know, explain it to them on their level. They do understand, trust that. It's obviously different when they're babies, I get that, when they can't talk yet. But, you know, when they can talk, trust that you can explain it on their level and they make a decision. And if they start crying and pulling away, let them. Don't force them to see them because that is really, really one of the most horrendous things you could do to your children. And the other thing that I'm always very, very big on is please, please, please don't bombard people with your grief stories when you hear about their loved ones passing. Honestly, it's like somebody's pregnant and everybody, every woman feels compelled to tell their worst horror story about birthing. Don't. And it's the same with grief, you know. I walk around and my husband just passed and then he's like, oh, yeah, you know, my sister's husband passed. I know exactly what you're going through. No, you don't. And it's just I understand why people do it. It's a sign of empathy. They think they're showing empathy, but they're not. They are sharing something uh, from their side that's adding to everything you've already got on your plate. You don't need that. You just need people to listen and to hold space for you. And that's how simple it is. It's not always easy, but that's how simple it is. Well, that is truly, truly beautiful and wise, and I agree completely. And so, Maria Lessi from Australia, thank you so much for helping us put another nail in the coffin. Um, this was an extraordinary conversation from an extraordinary person. And uh, if you check out the tab on the podcast, you will find all of the links and especially how to find her fabulous book and get a copy. So, um, for those of you listening at home, I again encourage you, if you love the podcast, to please support us the best way you can, which is to subscribe and maybe share it with a friend or two. I'm Mike Oppenheim, you've been listening to Coffin Talk, and we will see you soon.